I've been telling the worship team, if you guys can't figure out songs, just get a hymnal and just start playing through hymns. Anybody else? Yeah. I love the hymns, man. Love, love, love the hymns. Um, This morning as we get started, I want to introduce some folks that are in our church. Every Sunday we have various guests and and folks who visit. And once in a while I take time, opportunity to introduce some folks. And today, and I want to get this right, Gary, so if I totally butcher it, please correct me from... uh, We have some special folks from Sweden. Many of you know that our denomination... Uh, grew out of the church in Sweden, the covenant. And we have some folks here today who represent the church in Sweden. I believe we have the president of the denomination and, uh, and some of the, And we also have the president of our U.S. denomination here as well. So, Gary, if you could uh, stand with the rest of the guests, okay? And if we could give them a big hand. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Um, so, uh, the timing is terrible, right? Because I'm about to start a sermon series about stewardship, about financial generosity. But I need you to know something up front. Uh, one is that I actually had planned this sermon series way back before we even purchased the building. So call it God timing. Secondly, I said this at one of our town halls when we got together. If at the end of this deal, we actually raise $1.57 million and actually raise the money. But if our lives don't change, it's an utter failure to me. Bottom line. Like, part of me wants to go, let's give people all the money back and let's do something else. Because at the end of the day, raising some money for three years so we could do improvements and all that, but we walk away not being transformed as followers of Jesus, this is all for naught. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I might just, I don't know, give the money back. <laughs> and Jenny, I'm sorry I said that. I just, this is how I feel. Um, I'm going to get killed after this service. <laughs> There's a reason why we don't talk a lot about money and new community. And, and some of it's actually not good, but here are some good reasons why we don't. It's because we have a lot of seekers and people who are on a spiritual journey. And for someone who doesn't understand the Christian life and doesn't have a vital relationship with Jesus, the internal as well as external motivation for tithing or living a generous lifestyle just won't make any sense. So as pastors, as churches, to hammer away and give to the church, all that stuff, without getting to the root foundation of why the Bible calls us to be generous, it's really poor stewardship of time and energy. So we don't. Because we have folks in our church who are not Christian, searching, walked away from the church, all over the place. Having said that, you can't get around the fact that Jesus talked about money, and talked about money a lot. There are 500 verses or so about faith in the entire Bible, about 500 verses or so on prayer. There are 2,000 verses about money. There are more verses on money than heaven and hell verses, verses about heaven and hell put together. Jesus constantly talked about money. Now, here's the interesting thing. You ready? Jesus never asked for money, though. Jesus constantly talked about money, but he never asked people. There was at one time, 
He's sitting there going, ha ha, I know what you're thinking. There's that one time he asked for a denarius, remember? He's like, give me, is anybody a denarius? That's a coin. And somebody gave him a denarius and he took the denarius to give a teaching about civic responsibility and civic duty. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And as far as we know, he gave the money back. Jesus doesn't ask you for, he wants to ask you for something, but it's not your money. He's going to ask you for something. I'm going to ask you for something, but it's not going to be for your money. Caitlin and, and, and Jenny will ask you for your money. I won't. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask for you for your money. I'm going to ask you for something, but it's not going to be for money. It's not my job. God is asking you for something, but it's not money. It's for something else. The reason why Jesus talked so much about money, he summed it up this way. Check this out. In Matthew 6, 24, you'll be surprised. He says, you can serve either money or God. Now, I've, I've always been surprised and puzzled. Why doesn't he go, you could either serve Satan or God? He doesn't say you could serve Satan, which would seem to make more sense. But he says you could either serve money or God, but not both. He, he personifies money and says, money is something that could master you. Money is something that could control you. Why? Listen very carefully. Because you can't give yourself fully to someone as long as you're mastered by something else. You will not be able to give yourself fully to someone as long as you are mastered. It's just common sense. Mastered by someone else. In another place, Jesus said this. In Matthew 6, 21. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. We all know that every arena of life intersects with our hearts. There is no such thing as something that doesn't ultimately pass through our hearts. And Jesus ties money and our hearts together. Why? Because Jesus says our heart's deepest desires, our heart's deepest hopes, our heart's, some of us, deepest security ultimately is tied to money. Our heart's deepest desires. You could always find out. I don't even need to know you. You could always find out what you most love, most adore, most cherish by looking at where you easily, effortlessly spend your money. That's why Jesus says, I'm not going to ask you for your money. I'm going to ask for your heart. Because your heart is fundamentally being shaped by something that is competing with me for allegiance. See, people in the U.S. talk about the almighty dollar. We don't bow at the altar of money. Well, one guy does probably, but I'm not going to mention his name. Sorry, why did I do that? It wasn't even planned. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? And the fact that y'all cracked up and laughed tells you, shame on you. (laughs) People don't worship money. You know what we do, though? Money tells you what it is that you worship. If you're sitting here going, man, Peter, I was really hoping that you'd talk about something that's affecting me spiritually. Now you talk about money. I guarantee you, things that we'll talk about for the next five weeks will get to the root of many of our spiritual issues. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money, not even non-Christians know this verse, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Paul is saying money has some powerful side effects. If money was an over-the-counter medicine, it would come with the warning label. It would say something along the lines of, warning, it may cause arrogance. Warning, while taking this medicine, extra precautions should be taken. Warning, if taken for prolonged periods, it may impair your perception, causing hope to migrate elsewhere. Warning, it would have two happy couple in a park, you know? <laughs> and then bottom will be an announcer saying, there are all kinds of side effects, like heart damage, kidney failure, cause your life to blow up. Do you take that warning seriously? See, for some of us, I'll say this, what we do ultimately with our money, it says something about whether we really trust God. I get an amen? See, some of us are sitting here this morning and we're, we're honestly saying, God, you either can't or you won't take care of me if I live the radically generous lifestyle. More to the point, some of us are afraid that God won't take care of us in the fashion or style in which we feel like we need to be taken care of. So the gap between what we think God might be willing to do and what we think needs to be done We try and bridge that gap by saying, so I'm going to do what I need to do. And you're anxious. And you're worried. And the thought of giving generously to any of God's causes is literally impossible. See, that's not just lack of faith. Lack of generosity, I should say. That's lack of faith. It's not just in theory anymore about am I a Christian? Do I trust God when he says seek my kingdom first and all these things will be taken care of? Can I ask you something as we start off? Does the idea of giving generously frighten you or excite you? Turn your Bibles. We're going to be parked here in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is a small tiny book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. And because this is the first sermon of a sermon series, I like to, as many of you know, lay some big ground, sort of foundational groundwork for us to build on. So there are lots of questions that will be left unanswered that we'll continue to build on. But I can't think of a better passage as we start this series on stewards, extravagant, generous living. On Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 is a small book in the Old Testament, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Does anybody know who that's talking about? It's talking about the John the Baptist, right? And then he says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Who's that talking about? Does anybody know? Most, yeah, Jesus, right? Most Hebrew scholars believe that it's Jesus. So he's prophesying John and then Jesus. The messenger of the covenant whom you will desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then jump down to verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against the sorcerers, the adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But don't fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And we find the most puzzling verses in all of the Old Testament. 
including the Hebrew scholars agree. Verse 8, will a man rob God? And yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? You're under a curse for the whole nation of you because you're robbing me. Now, I'm assuming that you're awake this morning. So this here, you caught. Now, if you think for a moment, why would God call his people's lack of radical generosity in tithing and offering robbery instead of stinginess? How many would respond, well, if I came up to you this morning and said, you know, we should talk about your life of generosity. I think you spend way too much money on yourself and you don't nearly give as much away to meet the needs of others. You are so stinking stingy. You would be like, yeah, maybe. But how many would respond, well, if I said the same scenario, I said, you don't give enough away and you keep too much of yourself. Why are you such a stinking thief? You'd probably look at me like I was crazy. You'd probably go, you could accuse me of being stingy because I don't give enough away and I keep too much of myself. But don't accuse me of being a thief. And the reason why we would respond like that is because we completely miss the most fundamental truth about money in all of scripture. There is a man who did understand this fundamental truth. His name was David. I'm going to take you to a text in the Bible in 1 Chronicles. King David, I'm going to set the scene and then we're going to come to David. King David is at the end of his life. Many of you know about his story. King David is at the end of his life. A long, eventful life, as many of you know. And he is sitting in this palace made of gold and silver, amazing wood, amazing stone. And he realizes, though, that the presence of God, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, is literally sitting outside in a tent. And David says, that's not right. So I need to build a temple fit for my king, just like all the other gods, right? So he starts praying, and then he gets an answer from God. And God goes, you will not build this temple for me. He says, you have shed, God says, you have shed too much blood as a warrior. You will not build it. However, grace, your son will build it. So here's what David does. And we don't have time to go into all of it. David then decides to raise all the money needed to build this temple. Here's the thing. A temple that he will not see in his lifetime. So the scene we're about to take is he has raised all the money. The entire nation is given. And David stands up in front of all the people. And he prays this prayer. And listen to this prayer. First Chronicles. Chapter 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. And the next verse has always floored me. The next verse, say it with me. Ready? Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. One more time. Ready? Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. This is a man who who had spent his entire life For this kingdom. From a teenager. When he was chosen by God. This is a man who had spent his entire life. Expending literally blood, sweat and tears for this kingdom. And at the end of his life. In the most powerful kingdom in all the known world at the time. David has the audacity to say to God. God you see this kingdom. 
It's yours. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands, and take a note of that, in your hands there's strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Verse 13, now our God, we give you thanks and praise for your glorious name. For everything comes from you and we've given you only what comes from your hand. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building your temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. You know what, David, God, that we just totally miss out on? Here it is. Everything belongs to God. Everything comes from God. And to me, it's astounding how much David embraced this principle. Because again, you read about his life, particularly in First and Second Samuel, and you see that David is an amazing leader. David is a gifted king. David is, a, is an absolute genius military strategist. He works tirelessly, outworks everybody, shedding blood, sweat, and tears to build this kingdom. But he understands, unlike some of us, that regardless of how smart we are, regardless of how hard we work for our wealth, everything we have ultimately is a gift from God. Can I get an amen? When he says everything comes from your hand, the hand, word hand in Hebrew, told you to take note of that, literally means power and activity. In other words, David is saying, God, where I am today is a result of your power and your activity. I mean, just... I just ask, how many of us have done well for ourselves because of the family we were fortunate to grow up in? Anybody? Can I ask you something? Did you have anything to do with that? How many of us would be where we are today if we grew up on the edge of destitute poverty in the mountains of Tibet? Okay, so you're sitting there going... Okay, well, I'm one of those, Peter, that grew up in a family that made it impossible for me to be where I am today. So I outworked everybody. I outhustled everybody. I worked like great. To which I go, well, would you be where you are today if not for the health you were fortunate to have? For the talents and gifts and opportunities and circumstances that came at the right time. See, we could do this. Would you still be exercise all day? Would you still be? Would you still be? Would you still be? And at the end of the day, would not most of us say, I would not be where I am today had it not been for things that I had nothing to do with. Anybody? Everything that we have as a result and even if you're a Christian or not, everything that we have as a result at some point intersected with things beyond our control. And what David gets is, as a follower of the King and Jesus, everything that I have is an understanding that it is out of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace because it's his power and his activity that brought me to where I am today. And this theme, by the way, it's not just isolated. It's everywhere in scripture. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and 
everything in it. Exodus 19.5, the whole earth is mine. Job 41.11, everything under heaven belongs to me. Do you know what we do when we get this? Here it is. We understand that we are not owners of anything but stewards. People who've been given the responsibility to manage someone else's stuff. A steward ultimately has the goals, intent, purposes, and the priorities of the owner mind. Think of it this way. We relate to all that we have as a manager. A financial money manager relates to an investor. When an investor gives you money to to, to invest and you see your investments grow, you get excited because you're going to reap the dividends of investments and he gives you more to invest. But does any, does any money manager in their right mind think, you know what? My investments are growing. I'm going to reap the benefit of this. So I'm going to do what I need to do and spend it the way I want to. Nobody in their right mind would think like that. Nobody in their right mind as a money manager says, I'm going to do what I want to do because we're ultimately accountable to our investors. And our job as stewards is to invest the investor's money in his wishes, his goals, his priorities, his desires. Otherwise, there's a word for that in our country. It's called fraud. You know what's amazing about David? Thousands of years ago, he actually got this. Listen to verse 17. David prays, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you're pleased with integrity. What? All these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. Think about this. In verse 16, he goes, we have given all this abundantly, God. And as a result, verse 17, we passed the test for integrity. No, you passed the test for generosity, not stinginess. No, David says, I passed the test for integrity. Why? It's not his. It's not his. He says it's yours. It's an issue of integrity. This is the reason why God says in Malachi 3, you rob me. A failure to use the owner's wish, money as he wishes for his investments and using it as we wish for our investments is not being stingy. I know this is harsh. It's not being stingy. It's highway robbery. And I like to joke around, if there was a Securities and Exchange Commission in the kingdom, some of us would be looking at serious jail time. Say the following with me. My money, come on now, my money is God's money. My money is God's money. Here's what I want you to do today. When you go home, put this theoretically. You could do it literally for some of you that are like anal and stuff. Put the following phrase on everything that you own. Provided for and belonging to God for his use only. Can you put the next slide up, please? Provided for and belonging to God. Think. 
Think, 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 think for a moment with me. If you actually, if I actually went home and in everything that we have, our houses, our cars, our clothes, our money, our time, if everything that we have, we literally said in all of it, we put this label provided for and belonging to God for his use only. Provided for and belonging to God for his use only. How would this affect where you go out to eat? How would this affect what car you buy? How would this affect what home you purchase? How would this affect how you give to God's name? How would this affect your life and mine? How would this affect the vacations we take? How would this affect us if we genuinely, from the bottom of our hearts, put this label on everything and lived our life from this perspective? Provided for, belonging to God, for his use only. We're stewards who have been entrusted with God's, the king's resources, so that we could fulfill kingdom assignments. A steward with the kingdom perspective says, you, God, have entrusted me with resources, talents, opportunities, circumstances, network. What would you like to see done with your resources? How would you like me to invest in a way that fulfills your kingdom agenda. Second, only two, only two points today, okay? With like 10 sub points, but only two points today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm getting you out of here. Stewardship, unfaithfulness leads to injustice. I was going to say stewardship, unfaithfulness needs to cosmic evil, but then you'd be like, what? Because I'd be calling you like evil, but I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to say cosmic. Stewardship, unfaithfulness leads to injustice. Why? And sometimes I, I don't even pretend to do a good job of explaining this. So, like, pretend like you understand what I'm talking about. Okay? The word rob here that we just talked about is a very unique Hebrew word. Hebrew scholars actually themselves have kind of puzzled over it. Because, one, it only occurs twice in the entire Old Testament. You need to know that. And the word literally means, check this out, to plunder, to pillage, to oppress. Did you catch that? The word rob here literally means to plunder. And it described, one other place, it described a wealthy, powerful nation coming and plundering and pillaging and oppressing a weaker nation. And you see why Hebrew scholars have puzzled over this. They're looking and saying, God, how are we mere mortal human beings doing that to you? How are we pillaging and plundering and oppressing you? To which we go, well, we need to understand the Hebrew context. You can't understand the Old Testament until you understand the background of which this thought came. You see, the Hebrew people, can everybody look up here? This is important. The Hebrew people understood this concept. They understood that God created the world to be a place of shalom, a state of shalom. And shalom isn't just peace or absence of conflict. The word shalom literally describes a state in which there's presence of something. What? Presence of universal flourishing. Presence in which every facet of creation is working in such a way that there's harmony. The illustration and metaphor that the Hebrews used to describe this was they envisioned a garment. Think of a garment. State of Shalom is a garment. A beautiful embroidered garment. And this garment is a garment because there are thousands of threads that make up this garment. But listen to this. Thousands of threads. But each thread is interwoven, interdependent, 
and interconnected to every other thread. Each thread in this garment represents you and me, our lives, our resources, all that we bring. And a garment is one in which each of our threads and all that we have is invested, is connected, is in community, it's in solidarity with thousands and thousands of other threads. So there is interconnection, interwovenness with all these other threads in such a way that the result is a garment and not a bundled mess of threads. It's all of these thousands of threads interconnected, interrelated, in community, in solidarity, that there is a garment, strong, warm, strong, warm. What's interesting is even those of us in the West, in an absolutely individualistic, individualistic mindset, you notice when our society and our culture is failing, when there's stuff happening in our society and culture, we actually use this phrase, the fabric of our society is what? Unraveling. The fabric of our society is unraveling. Even in individuals and culture like ours, we picked up on this idea that no, no, no. God created the world in such a way, the way we relate to God and each other and creation. We need solidarity, community. We are all responsible for each other. What I do impacts you and what you do impacts me. There's no such thing as I'm going to mind my own business, do my own thing, let you take care of you. We are responsible for one another. Now, there's a man who understood this concept who was an American. His name was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the letter in the Birmingham jail, there is a quote where he talks about, in the concept of justice, this concept of interwovenness. Listen to what he said. Some of you never picked up on this. Listen to what he said. It is a real sense all of life is interrelated. We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And I love this. Tied together in a what? Single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. He got this. He said, there is a sense in which we are all intimately tied to each other. And what I do impacts you. And what you do impacts me. To which you're going, that was a wonderful exercise in what? What does that have to do with us? Robbing God and stewardship and faithfulness. I'll tell you exactly what it has to do. Dr. Michael Emerson, who is a noted religion sociologist, who actually is a part of our church, has done one of the most extensive research on American Christian giving ever. And he wrote a book called Passing the Plate. And he did a research on, the most thorough research on churches and giving. Hi there. Churches and giving. And some of you have already heard this presentation, but not in the context of what I'm talking about. These slides are going to be a little bit small, so unless you have supersonic sight, you will not be able to see it. So do your best to look at me and listen and look at the screen at the same time. The context. The Americans, Americans, this is a half full of you, are more generous givers than in other industrialized countries. Religious Americans are more generous in financial giving than non-religious Americans. That's the, you know, we're somewhat optimistic. Next slide, please. However, most Americans, Christians, turn out to be pretty stingy financial givers. But none of that is surprising to you and me. Next slide, please. 
This is the percentage of household incomes. And what you need to know is that the most generous people in this country make less than $25,000 a year. And the most stingiest of givers are those who make the most amount of money. Again, this is no surprise. Next slide, please. The amazing truth is contemporary Christians are the most affluent single group of Christians ever. U.S. Christians who are members of churches, and this is why the research is so amazing, members of churches earned a total collective income of more than $2 trillion last year. And we all said, what? Next slide, please. Amazing again is that $2 trillion earned yearly equals more than the GDP, total GDP of every nation in the world except six wealthiest countries. U.S., Japan, Germany, China, United Kingdom, and France. That is a lot of money, people. Next slide, please. The vast giving potential. If serious American Christians gave 10% of after-tax income and a third of less serious Christians gave 5%, they could generate over and above what they currently give a total of another $133 billion a year for God's work. $133 billion of God's work. So the next slide, please. The question becomes, well, what could we do potentially with $133 billion? Here's some scenarios. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Starting with the U.S. and then out to the world. I highlighted the portion I'm going to read in red. The black, if you have supersonic sight, you could read it for yourself. One, we could fund or hire 10,700 new youth pastors, okay? Youth ministers and churches all over the country don't know what to do with youth because of the lack of youth pastors. Another point that I want to bring out, it could fund 500 new prison ministry organizations. Another thing we can do is hire 50,000 new trained church-based adult Christian educators for re-education of U.S. Christians in theology, discipleship, and ministry. Next slide, please. Here's another thing we can do in the U.S. You could launch 300 cross-race immersion programs around the U.S. to allow Christians to live for two weeks in different race environments and work for racial justice. And if you want the most thorough work on this and what it's been like, talk to Michael Emerson and how valuable this is. Next slide, please, as we go out. We could provide church-based job trainings and career counseling to 100,000 unemployed people. We could also provide finance, all homeless, and poverty alleviation ministry in the U.S. Did you hear what I just said? We could finance all homeless and poverty alleviation ministry in the U.S. Let's go out to the world. Here's something we can do. We could sponsor 150,000 new indigenous missionaries and pastors. And anybody that's been overseas knows that the key to reaching the world is not U.S. Americans going and pastoring. It's raising up indigenous leaders. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Here's another thing we can do. Triple all the resources being spent by all global Christians on Bible translating, printing, and distribution. Here's another thing we can do. Provide 50,000 needs-based scholarships of $7,000 each per year for Christian seminary and Bible school students in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Here's some other thing we can do. We could provide funds. Next slide, please. Help build and expand and upgrade 75,000 church and ministry buildings in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We could quadruple the total resources spent on global missions. Quadruple the total amount spent on global missions to evangelize the unevangelized world. Next slide, please. We could finance 5 million grassroots microenterprise economic development projects per year in poor nations. I've been to many parts of the world. Microfinancing is the key to revitalizing communities economically. 
we could do that. We could completely close funding gap on resources needed by current global campaign to eradicate polio. We can eradicate polio. Next, finance 10,000 comprehensive faith-based programs with AIDS, HIV prevention, education, and medication. We could fund a million new clean water, well-drilling projects per year in poorest nations, dramatically improving health of tens of millions of people. We could also provide full resources needed for a global campaign to prevent and treat malaria. I have one more slide left, okay? And I'm done because I can't breathe. We could then provide food, clothing, and shelter to all 6.5 million current refugees in Africa, Asia, and Middle East. We could quadruple operating budget of Habitat for Humanity. We could double the current annual operating budget of World Vision. We could boost funding to organizations to provide free self-sized eye exam, vision care, glasses, limb braces, prosthetics for a million needy people. We could sponsor 20 million needy children, food, education, health care. We could trouble, quadruple resources being spent by Christians on medical missions. And here's the kicker. All of that cost $47 billion, which means we would still be left with $86 billion. That's one year, which means $86 billion would be available the following year, and then the following year, and then the following year. Do you know what's crazy to me? Is that we Americans actually have, not all of you, I'm just generalizing, We Americans actually have the audacity to see to God, God, look at the brokenness in the world. Do something about it. And God is up there saying, I did do something about it. I gave you the resources needed. to me that we American Christians we alone forget about this we love you Swedish folks I just want to I sound like this is not like a patriotic you know I'm like the furthest thing from that I'm actually criticizing our country okay so just we Americans have more than what we need to solve all of the world's problems And we have the audacity to say to God, you're unfair? Does that make any sense to any of you? This is why Paul says in 2nd, Corinthians, yes, you will be enriched in every way. Read the following with me, ready? So that you can be generous. There is a so that. You will be enriched in every way. And again, not all of you. We have homeless folks in our church family crying out. We have folks in our church making less than $10,000 a year. And they are some of the most generous people, by the way. But we Americans who are doing much better than the rest of the world, God says, I have given you all this. Why? So that you can be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. 
God has begun the healing process by ushering in the kingdom. We talk about a lot of restoring and, re- and renewing all of creation. But listen to me. God doesn't do that by some supernatural means where he's raining down money from heaven. He's going, I've given you more money. And you know what to do with. I know U.S. perspective have said, I need more, I need more. No, no, no. You. Do you realize that you have within you the power and resources to impact the world in actually bringing about level of healing and restoration? God has entrusted to you and me to live in this country at the most economically, financially wealthiest time of any time in history of the world. We have more money right now in this country. And God says, you think I gave that while you watched the rest of the, I gave that so that human flourishing, restoration, renewal, and strength for everyone. Why? Because what you do impacts them. And what they do impacts you. So here's the reason why we struggle with this. Malachi chapter 3, pick up at verse 10. I'm almost done here, you guys. Bring the whole tithe. And we'll say more about this in the next week, couple of weeks. God has made clear a baseline guideline. I know there's some people out there going, God didn't ever talk about tithing and Jesus never did. I'm not even going to talk about that today because that's the most ridiculous. Actually, read your Bibles. Jesus says, here's a, here's a baseline. Now, that's, here's the thing. It's not some legalistic 10%. No, no, no. There are people in our church who could do way more. You know who you are. There are folks in our church who can't even come close to that. It's not the set amount. And we say it's not equal giving, but sacrifice. Bring the whole tithe into this storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open up the gates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God is literally saying any fear associated with giving to God's kingdom work is irrational. You know what it's like? It's like a farmer. Anybody farmer? It's like a farmer who holds seeds in his hand and goes, if I plant these seeds, I'm not going to have any seeds. That's us. That's us. I've got these seeds. If I plant them, it's just going to disappear. Where am I? Are you acting a fool? Like, what? Plant it! <laughs> plant it! No, if I... We'll talk more about it in a couple of weeks. And you're like, couple of weeks, I'm not coming on that Sunday. All right, anyway. <laughs> Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. And all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful hand, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the reason why we're not more generous. Money reveals our idols. See the word storehouse? In Hebrew, it literally means treasury. Treasury, it's the place where the gold and silver, gold and silver and jewels were kept that supported the worship system of that God, the worship system of that deity. Every temple, pagan temples, 
all had treasuries or storehouses in each temple. And people would come and give whatever they gave, crops, jewels. And it was out of the storehouse or treasury that the worship of that God was maintained. So when God says, bring me into my storehouse, into my treasury, my tithe, God is literally saying, if you're not, then your tithe is going into some other treasury in support of some other God. Your tithe, some other treasury. Okay, so let me just make it very practical. If you find it incredibly difficult to be generous, radically generous, but effortless to shop for clothes, shop for shoes. Yeah, we do this now, right? We don't actually go. <laughs> By the way, you realize how dangerous it is now? You actually have to like physically go places and shop, which was somehow like a hindrance to spending money. Now it's open my computer. It's so easy. But if you find it so easy to shop for money clothes, but find it incredibly difficult to give to God's work, that means your treasury is your wardrobe. In support of the God of maybe, hey, look how I dress. Hey, look how I look. And getting a sense of significance from your physical appearance. If you find it incredibly difficult to be generous, but so easy going out to eat. Yes, I'm going to get personal now. So he's going out to eat, concert venues, sporting events. I find it so difficult to give generously. Your money might be going into the treasure of, I don't know, maybe status, social circles, going into service, some other idol, some other God. You find it incredibly difficult to be generous, but find it so easy to spend money on your house, decorating it, upgrading it. Maybe you get your significance from going, woo, look where I live. Or maybe, maybe it's other people coming over to your house going, oh, look at your house. Part of it for me is um, I find it incredibly easy to spend money on books. Books. Not just because I'm a nerd. Because I find my identity in knowledge, expertise. I find my significance, people going, ooh, you're such a good teacher and preacher. That's why I find my, so I find it incredibly easy to spend money. See, wherever you find it incredibly easy to spend money, and it just kind of goes into treasure, that's a good sign that it's going to treasure of some other God, some other idol, where you find your significance, validation, identity, and it's not God. Where, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And by the way, I know there are many of you sitting going, I've worn these shoes for 10 years. Those materialistic, greedy, you know what, in our church, they need to. But you know what you do? You say, and you say, and you say. And you're arrogant actually about it. You say. Why? Your temple is your savings account. And you think that your savings account is going to give you security control in a chaotic world. And you're going, if a rainy day comes, I'll be okay. But here's the thing that's crazy for me, right? Is that I have yet to meet somebody who did that. And when the rainy day did come, like there was a financial shakeup, they responded by saying, you know what, God? I knew this was going to happen, so I took care of myself. I didn't need you. I took care of myself. I saved up. So you know what? I'm in a bit of a financial bind, but you can go help somebody else. I've never heard someone do that. You know what they do? They go, I'm in a financial bind. Oh, Lord, everything belongs to you. Everything comes from you. And I'm sitting there going, okay. 
And I do this too, by the way. I go, what? Is there something kind of hypocritical about God? I could do it on my own. Take care of myself. You go to somebody else. He goes, you know what? It comes a rainy day. I need to do what I need to do. And then all of a sudden, when I'm in a bind, I need you now back in the picture. Why do we do that? And the other crazy thing for me is this. We all know, if we would just think for a moment, that there is no security regardless of how large our savings account is. Savings account can't stop cancer. Savings account can't stop divorce, broken hearts, accidents. It can't stop children who will rebel from you. It can't stop any of those things. It's an illusion to think that money can be our security. It's an illusion that's going to come shattering down one day. And yet, we believe this lie. If I just took care of me financially, just in case, thinking we could control our lives. You either trust God with your finances, or you will trust yourself. There is no in-between. You are this morning trusting in yourself or trusting God. So there's two sayings that I have. This is one of them. You could use it if you want to. Here's one saying. I will not trust in riches, but him who richly provides. I will not trust in my riches, but him who richly provides. I will not trust in my riches, but him who richly provides. Now I'll leave you with this. Where do you find the energy, strength, motivation? Of course I'm going to talk to you about the gospel. Here it is. You need to make Jesus your treasure. You need to make Jesus your treasure. You need to make Jesus your treasure. Again, this prophecy is about Jesus, talking about Jesus. And this Jesus ultimately did come one day into a temple. He started overturning tables. That's another sermon, by the way. But this Jesus is the same one who said, wherever your heart is there, your treasure is also. Even if you're not a Christian, will you please listen? Even if you're not a Christian, you and I have set our hearts on something. We've set our hearts on something, a treasure, and it is in that we find significance, identity. We have set our hearts on something is our treasure. And the reality is, it's human nature. We will pay any price for it. We will go to any lengths for it. It is our treasure. Why did Jesus die for you and me? Why did Jesus do this? Only answer? We're his treasure. Think about this. We, we, I know it's hard for some of you to believe because you look at yourself the way you see you and you don't look at yourself the way God sees you. This is how God sees you. Deuteronomy chapter 20. God comes and says, you are a holy people, chapter 7, verse 6, who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Is this good news to anybody? Is this good news to anybody? See, here's the thing. You will do anything for your treasure, and your treasure will say, you need to pay the price. Expend blood, sweat, and tears to get me all treasures, women, men, relationships, savings, career, whatever that treasure you pursue. And the thing is, when you get that treasure, it enslaves you. Jesus is the only treasure that comes along and says, I will expend my blood, my sweat, and my tears for you. And when you get me, you don't get enslaved. You become free. Why? When Jesus becomes your treasure, money no longer becomes your significance. Why? Because Jesus is your significance. It's just money. 
When Jesus is your treasure, money doesn't become your identity. Just money. Why? Because Jesus is your identity. And you're free. This is why Paul says the motivation for giving radical generosity is think on the cross. Think of his grace for you. Think of how he was rich, he became poor, so that you, in your poverty, might become rich. You are his treasure. You are his treasure. He went to the uttermost lengths for you. And when you get him, it frees you. How do you know if you've been set free? One, you'll tell your treasures what to do instead of your treasures telling you what to do. Instead of going, I wish I had more money, you'll actually find yourself going, I wish I had more Jesus. Instead of going, if I had more money, I wish I could, you'll say, with more of Jesus in my life, I could. Instead of saying, I wish I could get that job so that I could spend any, you say, I wish I could get that job so I'll have more time to serve Jesus. Secondly, how do you know that Jesus is your treasure? You're radically generous. The only way to know that you've broken the power of money over you is to be radically generous. The only way to know I am no longer mastered by something is to know I don't mind being radically generous. Here's another saying that I have that I repeat to myself. Generosity is what, I keep, is what keeps the things I own from owning me. Generosity is what keeps the things I own from owning me. Generosity isn't just for others. It's for my own liberation. It's my own freedom. So, you guys, um, part of our Imagine Stewardship Challenge involved and entailed um, various folks giving their stewardship testimony. And uh, they asked me and said, Peter, would you mind, as a pastor, sharing your story? And so I said, yeah. So here is my two-minute testimony story of my spiritual financial journey, and then I'm done. First and foremost, I want to change the culture of our church where we don't talk about money. Why do we talk about race, sex, just about anything? But when it comes to money, oh, no, don't go there. What is that? Why do we do that? Can't we in a godly, mature way talk about money and how it impacts us? We need to do that, yes? And I apologize. I'm sorry, church, that I've been a terrible model of that. No more. I will try and be a better model example for you of providing Godly environments, we could talk about this. So here I go, my own testimony. My own testimony is simple. My own testimony is that Jenny and I grew up in a family where we were taught by my parents to tithe. I still remember as a three-year-old in Korea, given, um, at the time it was shibwon, which is like, I don't know, less than a penny, right? And my mom would call me and go, Sangoga, which is my Korean name, Sangoga. Why am I speaking Korean to you? She would say, let me translate. She would say, this is for God. And she would put it in my pocket, right? And I would walk to church. Now, there are times when the devil got me and I would, you know, stop by the candy store and pick me up a candy. I just got to admit, I am confessing, all right? And then, you know, I'd go to church and I'd pretend to take something out. You've all done it too. Pretend, you know, take something out of my pocket, do one of these things. You know, Lord, I have a sweet tooth. Anyway, so... I just trained, and, and so all of my years, and pastor, you don't make a lot, all of my years, I just, you know, just tithe. It was just one of those, you just gave 10%. Jenny's similar. She grew up in an environment. And by the way, parents, what are you teaching your children? How are you modeling this? Jenny and I, three years ago, said this conversation. I said, you know what, Jenny? Giving 10% is not affecting our lifestyle. It's not. Let's just be honest. It's not. 
And we've, by the way, we support other missionaries, other family members. And we give bulk of our tithe to the church. You need to know that. And I'll talk about that. We, we give bulk of it because this is where our ministry is. This is where we're ministered to. We believe that we're impacting lives that are going to impact the world. So we give to this ministry because we believe in it with all of our hearts. So I said to Jenny, I said, what would it like if every year from now on we started giving one additional percent? So we've been giving about 12%, a little bit more for the last two, three years. And then, of course, the building thing came. And so we said, okay. But what do we do? And I said to Jenny, I said, Jenny, it's always been my heart's desire. And that's not because your parents are more spiritual. I'm really not. I struggle with it. I said, Jenny, ultimately, what would it be like if we gave 20% of our entire income to the church? Would that affect our life? Some of you know, my wife is a part-time pediatrician. She loves her practice. That's her ministry. And she gets paid well for what she does. She said, 20%. And what would that look like if we eventually continue to give towards that? Because again, New Testament standard, you got to know this is your pastor. It's got to start affecting your lifestyle. Otherwise, it's not sacrificial. And that's different for all of us. And when the sushi challenge came around, we kind of did the math and I said, well, you know what? It looks like we may kind of get to the 20% if we give this number and it turned out to be my annual salary. So here's what we're doing. I'm just going to be very matter of fact about it. I'm going to give my next year's annual salary to the building campaign. It's right around $60,000. For some of you, $60,000 is, eh. for some of you, it's a lot of money. I know. That's our church. For Jenny and I, giving close to 20%, that's going to affect our lifestyle somewhat. It's somewhat sacrificial. But we're going to reevaluate throughout. And if we can give more, we want to give more to this church because that's how much we believe in. So that's what your pastor is doing. That's what your pastor is doing. That's what our family is doing. We don't have a number for you. We would never say that. That's between you and God. My only question to you and me, our church family, is this. What does it look like for us to give sacrificial? Not equally. For some of us in here, I kid you not, somebody who gives a $5 bill on a Sunday morning, it's like 30% of what they make. For some of you, some of you, giving 10%, it's a blip. It doesn't even affect your life. You know who you are. We have everybody in between. Equal sacrifice, not equal giving. What would God call you to give? For some of you, I'm almost done. For some of you, I want to challenge you because you don't give at all to the ministry of this church. And I'm not saying you need to take all 10% because I don't believe in that, by the way. For some of you, I believe that if you are not supporting the ministry of this church that is ministering to you, nurturing you, you need to consider supporting this church ministry along with other missionaries, other people in need. So pray about what it means for you to start giving here. Then, for some of you who already do that, on top of that. Because what Jenny and I are doing is giving on top of. What would it look like? We're almost done. We're almost done, boo-boo. I know. I know. I know. You are giving voice to what they're saying, brother. I know. I know. What would it look like for some of you to give above and beyond what you currently give? Because that's the only way we'll fulfill that. I got a text. from a couple in our church, and I love this couple, and I think they sum up where you are. They said, we're praying about what stewardship means for us and the fears we have to face in order to do this. 
I think it's right to give in a manner that scares you a bit so you can trust that God will be with you to confront those fears. This is every bit as hard as it should be. They are on this journey. This is how it should feel. If it was easy, it's probably not sacrificial. Let's pray. talked about the Holy Spirit who speaks and prompts and I have full confidence that he'll do that with you. This is in many ways something that we do together as a community but also something that's vitally between you and God. So in about the next minute, just one minute, not longer than that, I just want to give you just space, just breathe out. I can't. But you can. I can't. But you can. I'm going to ask God, everything belongs to you. What would you have me do? What would you? have us do as a family. Particularly those who could relate to this dear brother of mine and it's fear and it's insecurity and it's the unknown. What would it look like for you to trust him? What would it look like for you to trust him? God, it is about trust and faith. It is about lordship and kingship. It is about whether we see ourselves as owners or stewards. It is about choosing a life of faith and risk and uncertainty over security, safety, and comfort. I don't know where everyone is at, but you do. And we cling on to you, Holy Spirit, to speak and to move. We know you speak. We know we could hear you. The question is, will we respond? 
Will we be obedient? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.